Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Necessity, or maybe frustration, is often the mother of invention. That was true for Margot Shaw. She went looking for a magazine specifically dedicated to all things floral, but couldn't find one. So she created one herself. It's called Flower Magazine. It's the only lifestyle floral publication in the U.S. But Margot's motivation through frustration is only part of her story. Her faith and her recovery from a battle with opioid addiction is what enabled her to see her passion clearly and to open herself up to a possibility that otherwise would have seemed very unlikely. Flower Magazine, which Margot launched in 2007, has just celebrated its 12th anniversary, and she is the editor-in-chief. Unlike most print publications of today, it's actually growing, having recently transitioned from a quarterly to bi-monthly publication schedule. Margot is also the author of a beautiful new book called Living Floral. Margot joins me today to talk about finding your niche and bringing one's passion to life, and in Margot's case, doing so in her late 40s. We'll also talk about the importance of creativity and beauty and the impact that those things can have on problem solving and sparking innovation, no matter what your line of work or field of study. Margot, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I am delighted to have you and to hear more about Flower Magazine and Living Floral and all the amazing things that you're working on. But I want to start with the magazine, what it is, how it got started. Give me a little bit of background. First of all, thank you for having me. And I do love the name of your podcast. Very clever. So Flower was an idea that was born out of my working in the floral industry, doing weddings and parties and sending flowers and um, workshops and never being able to find anything really quality that appealed to me. Lots of industry magazines, but nothing with a human element, nothing with story, nothing with breaking down an arrangement or covering a wedding. I mean, there are plenty of brides magazines, plenty of garden magazines, shelter, but there was nothing devoted just to flowers. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of got this idea, and sort of, I got this idea, dropped into my spirit, you need to start a flower magazine. Just like that. Yeah. I, well, I was trying to gather up probably eight or ten magazines in the Atlanta airport to find maybe one page about what I loved. And I found a few things, a few pages, but I, that's when, that was the genesis, was the frustration and I think a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of ideas like this are rooted in that. Mm-hmm. I can't find what I want, so I'm going to start it. So your background was largely in design, but not so much in floral. Right. Art history, 
studies and interior design and just a love of culture and beauty, visual arts, performing arts, all of it. And I really enjoyed touring gardens and seeing gardens, but had no experience, no background at all. You know, flowers are pretty, but that was really all there was. So this was a new uh, developing passion back then. So when you had the idea for the magazine, had you been talking about such a thing for a while? Did you just literally wake up and say to the people around you, I'm going to start a floral magazine? Pretty much. How did that go over? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting that you asked that because it really was... Maybe it was developing in my in my subconscious and in my spirit, but I did not recognize that. So that when that thought came into my head on the airplane, going to the islands at Christmas, I, w- I was surprised. But as I said, um, I think it was this need that I could not find and have met that engendered that. And, and the tumblers clicked into place. I knew it was a God idea, not a good idea. It was maybe it was a good idea too, but it was it was a spiritual kind of wow moment for me. You said a God idea, and probably a good idea too. Yeah. Talk talk a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, I guess in the last thirty two, I'm thirty two years in recovery, and so that was the beginning when I got clean and sober from opiates. That um, I recognized that that, because I couldn't do it myself. I kept trying, and I just couldn't stop. And so I just cried out to God. And so from then on, it's not been easy, but it's I've been free. And in a few years, I began to really wake up to life. And so that's that's the beginning of the story in terms of my, the second chapter of my life. And then I just began to pay attention. And as I was awake and alert and open, things started happening. And that was when I went to work for the floral designer, even though I had no experience You were an, whatsoever. an intern, right? I was an intern for six months. And you were 46? 46, yeah. The oldest by far in, in the shop, except for the owner. And so that was interesting, but I had no problems being 46 and being an intern because I knew I didn't know anything. And I really learned at the feet of a master, Sybil Sylvester. She's still one of my top five. So I just soaked it all up. I did everything. I drove the delivery truck, you know, this white panel truck, wildflower designs all over Birmingham to deliver flowers. Which was one of my favorite things because everybody smiles. Everybody loves to see you coming. So, but I learned and did, and I learned by doing, frankly. And I got to that point where a few years in there, I was just frustrated because I'm a voracious reader and I read a lot of magazines and I read a lot of books. So I was just coming up empty. This was obviously a painful experience for you for your family as it would be for anyone what what should people know Uh, this is a big big topic Mm -hmm. and it affects so many families and so many people what what should people know about addiction 
I have learned a lot, frankly, not only through my personal experience, but through um, something that my husband and I are real involved with, which is a mood disorder, depression, suicide center, raising money for that at the university in Birmingham. And so one thing I've learned that I wish I'd known 32 years ago is that most people who develop an addiction are medicating a mood disorder, whether it's depression or anxiety or social anxiety or schizophrenia. I mean, it doesn't matter. Um, We don't feel right. And so we reach out to find that substance that's going to bring us back up to level. And that that was a big revelation for me. I mean, I had heard that, but but once I saw the science, um, it made a, it made a bigger difference for me, and it gave me more passion to help others, <clears throat> especially those who have never heard that. That wait, let's take you off this, get you off this, and see where your mood goes, and then we can medicate the mood with good things. Yeah. So that was a place of revelation for me and a lot of people now and then the I guess one of the other things is that each person is different each solution is going to be different and people who think well I'll send my child to a 30-day rehab and then wash my you know and it's done that's just the beginning just the beginning so it's it's a commitment and I don't I wouldn't say it's lifelong because I don't tussle with that 32 years in Thank God, but it it takes what it takes. It's a good twelve step phrase, and um, and I would say twelve steps are great. And also, I think you can't do it alone. And I think we need our higher power. And in my case, God and Jesus. And so, can't do it alone. Yeah. So faith played a big role. Huge in your life. Yeah. Still does. And continues. And has with the magazine, of course. Yeah. Starting the magazine was really starting a whole new chapter for you, literally. Um, talk about how difficult it was to start a magazine with no publishing experience. None whatsoever. <laughs> uh, I know. It's it's highly unlikely that I should be here now before your microphone talking about this magazine and this book. But... How amazing that you are. I agreed. <laughs> agreed. And, I, and, you know, I really am grateful every day, and I'm surprised every day at at the success and the it, – it was hard. It was a challenge, and it continues to be. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily not good or enjoyable or life-giving. It's It's been great. And uh, I've had to distill a lot of my – interests and passions and to to just say okay I can't arrange flowers for events and do things like that and I can't really garden or study about I don't have time I'm an editor now and not having any experience in that field I did what I would recommend anybody do if they want to start some kind of project any uh, potential entrepreneurs that you really seek out the experts which being in Birmingham, Alabama, where Southern Progress was based with Southern Accents, Southern Living, Coastal Living, all of those great shelter titles and lifestyle titles was just the perfect spot for me. It was it was uncanny. It's almost as if an unseen hand. No. Uh, well, no, it was. But 
um, I think one of the things I would say, and, and I did it, I was unabashed about going to those people. Karen Carroll, who was the editor-in-chief of Southern Accents, I went to her before that title closed and kind of sat at her feet and said, this, what, this is my idea, what should I do? And she was one of, Lisa Newsom helped me. I mean, there were people that were everywhere ready to help, which, you know, you don't think about that. You're a little intimidated by all these professionals, but I didn't care. I was really, I was fearless about that. I was, I've got to do this thing. Will you help me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so you largely self-funded this project, right? Did you completely, completely, you didn't go out for additional funding? No. And I'm so glad I didn't. Because I had just enough. I had a, a nice, I had a nice cushion, uh-huh. so that I was able to start this small niche title. And people who come to work for me know that they're not gonna get rich. <laughs> they have to love it. Yeah, and they do. And I have some of the best people in the industry. For obvious reasons, I've, I've cherry-picked out of Southern Accents and Southern Living and all those titles and, and salespeople and contributors all over the country that love the mission, that, that love what we're doing and are interested in beauty and um, flowers and lifestyle, botanical lifestyle, and, and they just like our culture, mm-hmm. I'll say. Mm-hmm. You launched this magazine in 2007, mm-hmm. so right at really the height of the <laughs> of the, the bottom falling out. Yeah, of the, yeah. Uh, an interesting time to start a magazine, I, or anything else for yeah. that matter, right? Yeah, I hear that. <laughs> I hear that still to this day, and I will agree with that. And to me, it's just more evidence of the urgency and the really the... Uh, determination that I had because I knew that and I also recognized that print was waning and now it's not which is great but well it is it is and it isn't right and that's one of my it's not going away it's not going away but I, I did it was again an unlikely place not place but time in the world to start a print magazine the the thing besides my passion and my knowing that I couldn't not do it that made it I think more uh, smoother was the fact that it was it is a niche magazine and it's a broad niche now that it's lifestyle but it's still a niche because it's botanically based uh-huh. and that I believe and if I heard and read is the hope of print is those because our readers are so loyal i mean we get mean phone calls when people don't get their subscriptions on time i mean they're like i need my flower magazine and you know so they're very loyal they're very passionate and those who get the brand and what we're producing and communicating love it and i hear that all over the place. So, but it is that niche, I think, that that is keeping it alive, word of mouth, things like this. Mm-hmm. Thank you, by the way. Of course. I'm happy to have you. Um, talk a bit about, to the role that digital plays as well, because we're in a whole different ballpark as it relates to social media and digital content. So how do you get the balance between the print content and the digital content right? 
Such a good question because, yes, we're in a different day now, and I see it. I'm not threatened by it. We have developed a really strong digital presence, and I've done what I've always tried to do is hire the best, and uh, we, we had hired someone who came, was running, had started My Home Ideas at Southern Progress and was just a genius. And then he got hired back for twice what we were paying him, and that's okay. But he recommended somebody who is just as good, maybe not better, but different. Mm-hmm. And she is an excellent writer. She's a gardener. And she's a techie, and she does the analytics, and she's amazing on social. Our social uh, profile has grown probably 10 or 15% since she got here there last February. Mm-hmm. And is that largely Instagram? It's everything. It's Pinterest. It's Facebook. Instagram is my go-to. I, I never even really get on uh, other platforms. I'll check my Facebook, and when I get a message, you know, and that's a good way for us to communicate what we're up to is Facebook, and it's very effective, and we'll do some advertising there. Uh, we don't advertise on Instagram, but, yeah, it's about really, I mean, I remember being in a board meeting, and several of the people were this was five years ago just saying you've got to step up your digital or you're not going to make it and so we have but we've cross-pollinated with the magazine and so it it enhances our presence it enhances our brand rather than detract because we haven't changed I mean we've changed and grown the magazine the print but we have not skimped there you know, if I ever have to cut back on the paper quality, I'll just call it a day. Talk a bit about how you engage with your customers. You talked about the fact that they're a very loyal following, mm-hmm. but how do you keep them engaged? Because part of taking advantage and having these new digital and social media tool at your disposal also creates some, I think, responsibility mm-hmm. as it relates to customer engagement. Mm-hmm. Talk about how you think about customer engagement. Well, interestingly, I don't mm. <laughs> okay. I, that much. And it's a function of having this great web editor, um, manager, and also we loop in our sales and marketing p- people with that area of the magazine. So I will tell them what I'm doing and what I'm thinking, and it'll translate to our platforms if I'm going somewhere or doing an event or we're sponsoring something or we have found the the greatest new floral designer who's up to something then I'll be sure that that's communicated but how that gets to our customer and our reader and our followers that's up to them yeah and I, I think I sent something yesterday and said we need to talk about this and then we'll get however many likes or follows or whatever. And I don't, I don't tend to that really at all, except feeding information and things that I think are worthy. Because I have a good team. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. So as you look at your role as editor, I would imagine it's a very multifaceted role and that you can 
dip in and go deep in any particular piece, whether it's deep on the business side or deep on the creative side or deep on other Marketing, in other elements. Sales, yeah. yeah. So how do you how do you think about your role and what's the piece that you sort of love the most? Like where, where do you go deep or how do you get the balance right? Interesting. Well, Yes, I do. I do like to go deep on certain areas, and then others I don't love to go deep, like the numbers. And anyone who knows me will confirm that. But again, I have an incredible team that that takes care of that, and circulation, and all of that, subscriptions. And I'm interested, and it's vital. But my passion is brainstorming about edit the content of the next six issues and uh, looking at images and layouts and reading. I read every word that goes into the magazine. Even if I'm on the road with this book, I will see it online. I'll see it on my laptop and read every word. And I'll change things. I have a couple of writers I don't ever change. But other than that, um. Yeah, I'm involved with that. I'm involved with marketing in terms of our events. One thing about being small is that we're more nimble. And if somebody calls and says, hey, I want you to sponsor so-and-so for this antique show, we can look real quick and say, yeah, we'll do it. And this is what we can do, and I hope that works. And and then if I'm asked to moderate a panel at an antique and garden show, I can do it. I can say yes right away, and or I can change something. If an advertiser doesn't like um, their position in the magazine or they want the back cover or whatever, we can make that decision, and it's not contingent on how many times they run. or You know, we've got latitude, and we're nimble, and people respond to that. So the marketing is fun for me. We've just, I hope this isn't gauche, but we've just partnered with Cherish, and so they're sponsoring my book tour. And Cherish, tell me what Cherish, <clears throat> Cherish is. Cherish is an online design platform where, I mean, I have to say they're based in San Francisco and all that that entails. Their, their things are new, old, vintage, antique, uh, but they have, a, they have a personality. They have a voice that's different. It's a, it's a cool first dibs. And consumer, open to consumer, designers, they do special pieces with designers um, on their site, which are really interesting and informative, and they partner with designers. But, but it's for everybody, which is great, and they're really easy and fun to work with, too. So I'm, I'm shilling for them at this moment, but, <laughs> but there's no compromise there. They're an outstanding outfit. Uh-huh. That's yeah. great. Talk a bit about, you've mentioned your team a couple of times mm. and how incredibly talented that they are, and you clearly go after talented people in these roles, but but talk more in depth about building a culture. How do you go about not only picking the talented people that are the best fit, but the talented people who are also the cultural fit? I'm going to have to go back to the faith piece, the God thing, because... That's really how I, I've just kind of prayed people in. I mean, that sounds wild, but I never worry when somebody leaves. Um, they usually go on to something bigger, and that's what I want. I mean, I want good for my people. 
and I've lost some people to bigger titles, and that just tells me we've done a good job with them. And so, really, people know that they're, again, not going to be billionaires wintering in St. Bart's if they come to work for Flower. They will have a culture that is life-giving and affirming and uh, looser. Our office is in a shingle cottage a mile from my house, right near Starbucks, and which we love. Very important. Has a, <laughs> a, yeah, of course. And it, it has a backyard, so people can bring their dogs. They can bring them into their office and then take them out and and we are we have a cat we have an office kitty marigold who was named that before we got her people can bring their children if they have to if a child is sick and they don't want to go home they bring them to the office and quarantine them in their office obviously and play with their legos so it's that kind of place and that's what i wanted that's how that's just how it has evolved because because we can't pay the huge salaries so there have to be benefits other other types of benefits and um that's what it is so people that are are there seem to love it yeah i'm fascinated by the topic of creativity and beauty and the impact that it can have on problem solving and innovation whatever sector that you work in Give me a little bit of your perspective on how you think about something like Flower and the beautiful content that you're creating and the beautiful articles that you're writing and how it can have an impact on somebody who's not necessarily in the floral or design world. A lot of readers are not. We have a lot of garden club readers, but we have a lot of just readers women's groups or but just readers that are interested i think the creativity element the beauty factor is so um, nurturing and once people recognize it and they start to read the magazine because we have excellent writers they begin to get kind of filled up and inspired whether they want to do flowers or want to have Gracie floral paper in their dining room or, you know, whatever. Even if they never make a move towards that, in that, in that moment where they're sitting and reading the magazine, I think they're inspired and built up and fed. And so I have a really strong sense of the importance of beauty, especially in our culture. And I think we're giving something to our reader. We're not just trying to sell ads and sell some content that I think it, it, and it flows out of my desire to share my passion. I think there's something that's so magical about it that's very difficult to explain. I think it's difficult. You did a beautiful job Thank explaining you. it. I think it's difficult to explain. We haven't talked about your new book, which is called Living Floral. Tell me a little bit about the book. Thank you for giving me that opportunity to plug the new book. (laughs) It's beautiful. Thank you. Very well written. It's really a lovely book. Thank you. Well, again, that's two. Those those are those two writers and me. I changed some of my words, but I've not changed one of theirs. Karen Carroll and Lydia Somerville. Mm -hmm. So so they write for the magazine, and they they do. They do, but they also they're freelance now, Mm -hmm. and they were full time at Southern Accents. So. Uh, they were my sort of mentors, especially Karen, but also Lydia, and my my models for this is the level of quality that I want in flower. So 
the book was a product of our publisher, Julie Durkee, who's really, she's our lead salesperson. And she was out, she's out in the culture, she's out in the world. And she kept seeing everybody wanting a book from us, wanting something kind of codified and capsuled and, you know, condensed that they could have and that they could give, that they could read, that had the voice of Flower, but was more substantial. Size and variety and just really the embodiment of the magazine in one in one thing, in one item. So she also said it will get you out more and you can promote the magazine more because, again, we're small but mighty. I'm, I like to say that. And so the book, her vision was that it it would be used to really amplify and expand the presence of the magazine in the marketplace. It has. Yeah, and you you are essentially on a book tour of sorts. That's part of what you're doing. Not of sorts. <laughs> Not of sorts. No, I mean no. That's all you're I'm on doing. On a book tour. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm three cities per week usually. Oh wow. And having but having fun. Yeah. You know, loving it, loving the response. We're in our fourth printing. It's a Rizzoli title, which no one's more surprised than I about that. It was really really an honor that they wanted this book. They've been great to work with. Talk a bit about your interaction with your public on the book tour. What's been the response to the book? It's been overwhelming. It's been, again, no one's more surprised than I. People are responding to it and buying it and giving it. I think last night at um, a garden club presentation, we sold out. And people bought three and four books to give us gifts and so I'm excited about that, and I'm seeing I'm seeing people get the facet of the book that it's it's inspirational, but it's about people, and there are portraits of people, tastemakers across the spectrum in each chapter, and some tips and and um, then some how tos at the end. So it's this melange of things that are really apparently very missing in the book market and there's a lot for young people too I think that people in the next generation would respond to and people are you know women are giving it men are giving it to their children and grandchildren to say come along you know brown furniture is good in in moderation if you have a party you don't have to do a big old arrangement you can do apothecary bottles with dahlias all the way down your day you know just trying to make gracious living more accessible and I give it for engagement presents and you know things such as that so the response in terms of the people that I've encountered has been lovely as I would expect uh, of people who love beauty and gardens and flowers and design and kind of grateful, like, where's this been? And so it's always really encouraging to me. And that gives me energy to go to the next city. I love the people and I love the the response. It's just really... Yeah. Any particular favorite stories from the book? You've You've profiled a number of different people. I mean, that's sort of like picking between your children if yeah. you have more than one. Um, anything that stand out to you that really resonated with you personally? I think I would have to say that that, and I don't. I'm not trying to obfuscate or 
evade your question, but they're so different. Each person is so different that it is really hard to respond to that. But, you know, they're all my good friends now. And so if I say I like Alex Hitz's chapter <laughs> better than Charlotte Moss's, I will get in trouble. And I'd also be lying. Right. So, and, and they're, I mean, they're just all different. And they're all very, very valuable, I think. You know, not going to save the world, but beauty matters. Hashtag beauty matters. And uh, gracious living is important. And uh, traditions. And um, I, I like them all. That's a terrible answer. But they're all my friends. You know, I think Richard Keith Langham, if I had to say, is, is such, he's one of my favorites. And, and his house on Long Island, which was called the Witch's Hat, was just fun. I mean, these are all fun, but he's hysterical and playful and whimsical and so uh, didn't take this too seriously. And it was, he was just fun to work with. But er, almost everybody is. And I'm not going to name the ones that aren't. So there. Yeah. So for women listening who are thinking about something entrepreneurial like you did, what would be your advice for them? I would say pay attention to your life. Once you say, yes, I'm going to do this, then pay attention to the people who come across your path, which is what I did immediately because I didn't talk about it to anybody, which is really uncharacteristic. At all? My husband. And he's an Episcopal priest. We would get together and pray about it and wait. I continued to work for my mentor, Sybil, and do events and and all of that. And people came across my path. And with just who I needed or just what I needed or just where I needed to be. And it continues. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that. Pay attention to your life. Always know that you don't know. Find people who do and defer and just keep deferring because none of us knows everything. There's always someone who's done this better or longer and and just don't be shy about it. And then surround yourself with really good people, which I've done. It took me a while. The first few years I had some, some gifted team members, but now I have the just the dream team the level of expertise and experience and interest and enthusiasm. And so now I can go on a book tour. Yeah, There are lots of things I would say, but those are the key things. Pay attention, surround yourself with really good people, and listen to them. How about dealing with any early setbacks or just setbacks generally speaking? How do you, how do you weather through challenges? I mean, you've had... Real, a really significant life challenge that you've overcome. Mm-hmm. So it almost feels like a trite question to even ask you that. But no, in the context not. of your yeah. work, these are different, sometimes different things. So how do you think about day-to-day setback? You've got a huge mistake that goes out in an issue, or God forbid, <laughs> right? <laughs> that never ha- No, it's <laughs> it's happened a few times. And I will, do I have time to tell you about yes. one? Because this is... This is sort of classic. So James Farmer, I don't know if y'all know him, but he's a dear friend, and he's just kind of a renaissance man. Southerner does design and arranging and cooking and has like 10 books out, and he's a great guy. 
So he offers us his stories first. Um, he has things photographed, and and then we'll, if we like it, we'll take it and, and write the feature and, and, and include it in the magazine. He did this beautiful house somewhere in South Alabama. There was a plantation, because there are a lot of plantations in South Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi that have been converted to quail preserves. And, you know, just to people buy them and, and restore the houses and, you know, develop quail habitat, which used to be almost endangered in this in the deep south so he photographed this beautiful plantation home that he designed and it was just extraordinary and we all loved it so we were yeah absolutely we're gonna include it in this issue this next issue whatever and i got a letter a handwritten letter from a woman in houston who shall remain nameless and she just lit into me about including a plantation and how dare you? That is so racist. That is so backward. That is so this. That is so that. And so I didn't write her back. I didn't. She obviously didn't email. She was older, which surprised me too. And so I found her phone number and I called her. And I didn't get her, but I got her daughter. And she was sort of the gatekeeper. And, and I said, look, I just would like to, A, thank your mother for taking the time. And I meant it. I mean, it's important to me to hear from our readers. And I said, I just need her to know that if there's a beautiful plantation house and or garden, we're going to feature it. If it, you know, we're going to feature it and we're not going to call it a house. If it's a plantation, that's, it's not like they have slaves. I mean, hallelujah that they don't. And we're, we live in a day where it's not like we're glorifying that era, but we're preserving what's best. And I'm never going to, bow to the politically correct culture I'm just not so that was a challenge and I sat with it for a while and then I responded and I said please thank your mother for subscribing and I hope she'll continue but this is how it is did you hear back from her no she communicated the daughter communicated I guess to her mother and that, as far as I know, they haven't um, stopped their subscription. I hope they'll continue to be flower lovers and readers. But if we lose her, we lose her. Because I'm not going to compromise yeah. who I am. Tell me a little bit about the process of pulling the book together. How did the book come about? Well, as I said earlier, it was really inspired by our publisher who urged me slash badgered me into doing a book and by the time I was ready I had the team in place that I could leave that I could work solely on the book and not worry about anything else about the magazine so that was helpful so did you completely take a leave pretty much I would still read every issue and I would still go to the brainstorming meetings um, when I could but I came through the office one day and I had really put this out to two other publishers. And one, interestingly, a really great publisher liked it, but they said, it's not hard working enough, which term I did not understand. I was like, I work my A off. What are you talking about? She meant, it. we just want how-tos. We want step-by-steps. We want to engage our reader and, and have actionable in every chapter. Mm. So I was like, that's not who we are. 
and we have some you know as you've seen we have five how to's in the back Mm -hmm. but I want other things so I was happy that they didn't want the book because that's not what I wanted and then another uh, publisher I talked to one of the editors at length who edited a friend of mine's books and she was very enthusiastic so I sent her the book uh, proposal and never heard back. So I, I thought, well, I could call her and, and badger her, but that's not how I operate. I really believe you, you shouldn't have to force things. So I went then through my managing editor's office and Alice Welsh Doyle, who had been with Women's Wear Daily, L, Southern Accents, Entree, Southern Living, was just an incredible resource and, and a great catch for us. And I said, Alice, you know, we featured so many Rizzoli titles in our book reviews and our Q&As. And of course, we love Rizzoli. But do we know, that's marketing. Do we know anybody on the edit side? And she said, sure. She called a friend, maybe that afternoon, I think. I got a call back from my future editor and we talked for an hour. I flew to New York, met with her and Charles Myers, the head of Rizzoli, showed them what I had, and within a month, I had a contract. And my editor is the best, Sandy Gilbert. She She's from New Jersey. She's this little lady who's a dynamo, and she loves Southern topics and Southern design and Southern writers. And so she does Julia Reed and Bobby McAlpin and and me and just lots of other, Susan Sully, uh, Rhonda Rice Carmen, all Southerners. That's amazing. And and she just has a knack with us. And so that was that process was fabulous. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I think that Rizzoli liked was that I had an infrastructure in place. I, I was known by all these garden clubs and women's clubs and antique and garden shows and things that they knew wisely would be a good strategic place. And so that has been an advantage because I've gotten so many invitations to come and speak and sell books. And also we used our creative director to lay out the book, which meant they didn't have to call in somebody. Now I got a great advance, so I didn't have to pay for it. So that was the best of both worlds. I could see everything in the office and talk about the color of the font on the binding of the book, you know, and see it there. And layout and just, of course, they had all the input, you know. And I would go up there every now and then, and we would talk about what we'd done and edit this. And But it was, it was really a good match. Yeah. When you think about this notion of impact and you look at your body of work, what impact do you hope you will have had on others? Well, if you know the Not So Prim Rose book, it's all stories of mishaps of mine and embarrassments and, and fiascos from the first 10 years of my life with Flower. And so I like to think I've made people laugh because I laugh at myself. And it has changed, honestly, the way that I view embarrassing um, negative situations where I have been, you know, even humiliated at times. I think people love to laugh. And I will just mention this one little story that hasn't been in, in, in the magazine yet. 
a wonderful interior designer and party planner named Rebecca Gardner out of Savannah in New York did a book signing for me at her incredibly chic mid-century house, believe it or not, in Savannah. And it's it's so beautifully decorated, very understated. And she gave this whimsical, extraordinary, perfect dinner party. And I came down the stairs, and everybody was already there because I had to come home and, and freshen up. And so I walked in and started introducing myself. And there was this crowd of people. And, I, hey, I'm Margot Shaw. I'm, you know. And so I saw somebody across the room that I wanted to say hello to. So the crowd kind of parted a little bit, but I didn't look down. And I went A over tea kettle over a low fainting couch. <laughs> and... And I mean, there's just no way to to not have that be hugely embarrassing. And there was this. What were you wearing? Not a dress. Oh, thank God. Not a dress. But but there was this hushed kind of gasp. And then I just said, you know, talk amongst yourselves. I'll be right back. And I couldn't get up. I was like a deer that you see over the over the hood of a pickup truck. I was just both sides. And finally, this hand came out from behind me and pulled me up. And then I turned to the right, and there's India Hicks, who... Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) And yet, she was the funniest of all, and she was the most gracious and put me at ease immediately. So, and everybody, it was a great, you know, icebreaker. So the rest of the night, it was just this sort of, you know, conversation starter and and running joke. And so I'll, it'll probably be in Not So Primrose in the future. Those are the kind of things that I immediately think, oh, this is fodder for Rose. And I just don't worry about it. So <laughs> I, I like to make myself transparent about really almost all things and especially things that are just ridiculous and humiliating and funny and and so I hope that people if they read that or they buy that little book will give it to people and because I think the gift of laughter and laughing at yourself is really valuable there's that I think to expose people to beauty and accessible design and education is one of the best things, the most important things, unless you're not interested. And if you're not interested, you're not. But I think a lot of people are, and it's the missing piece in uh, publications. And even the shelter magazines that are so beautiful don't have, uh, well, they don't have the botanical voice. And I don't know, I think that, that Flower is, for me, is about really opening doors to people about the way to bring nature into your house, into your life, because, you know, it all started in a garden. And so, as Joni Mitchell said in that song, Woodstock, we got to get ourselves back to the garden, you know, and that's that's part of what I want to do, to make people aware of the creation. Yeah. Final question. Yeah. We ask everyone who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, life hack, or mantra. It could be something that advice you would give your younger self. It could be any one of those things. What would be yours? Well, one thing I would say about my younger self and people who are younger and wanting to figure it out right away, um, I look back at my CV and 
I realized that everything I've done has built, led to the next thing that is now, whether it's art history, interior design, uh, photography, uh, being in the junior league, you know, whatever, whatever, has really just become part of what has informed my life now. So don't despise the day of small things. If you are waiting tables, that's going to teach you how to contend with people and negativity and to begin to learn to serve. I mean, I think we're lacking that. I think to serve others is is important and an honor. But yeah, just be patient with your life, I would say, and pay, and pay attention. Yeah. Margo, it's amazing. You're amazing. Thank, Thank you, you so Laura. Much. Thank you for having me. This was am- truly amazing. I Thank really, you. really loved the conversation. Well, I enjoyed it. You're a perfect moderator. Thank you. No, really. You're very sweet. You're one of the best. <laughs> so thanks for having me. Thank you so much. To learn more about Margot Shaw and Flower Magazine, I've included some great links in the show notes, including a link to Margot's terrific book, Living Floral. And I'm also including some great photos from our visit today. Women lead and impact others in incredibly diverse ways. Showcasing role models like Margot allows us to learn from her story, to benefit from her wisdom and perspective. You'll find so many amazing, incredible episodes and other inspiring women like Margot on our platform at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. Please be sure to subscribe and make sure and share us with your friends. As always, thanks so much for listening. 